I'm Elizabeth Vincentelli, and I write for the New York Times and the New Yorker. I'm Terry Tichab, drama critic of the Wall Street Journal. And I'm Peter Marks, theater critic of the Washington Post. Welcome to another episode of Three on the Isle, a monthly podcast from New York about theater in America. We are hosted by American Theater Magazine, a publication of the Theater Communications Group. Well, hello, all you theater-starved listeners. I was going to say welcome back, but uh, we're really not back, are we? Um, That's really not the right, right term. Well, you know, anyway, Terry Elizabeth and I are, as you know, always here for you. So, uh, <laughs> did you really did. say that? You did. Podcast. Oh, you shame, shameless tendering. We have not attracted that billion dollar donor yet. So I'm trying different come ons, you know, who's going to, you know, underwrite us for that, for that big check that we're waiting for. We're not competing with theaters at this point. God knows they need the money. But anyway, uh, uh, we are here for you. That's absolutely true, as is Erica Huang, our producer. Uh, we're going to talk today about some of the pressing issues that are circulating in theater circles, even when there's no theater. Okay, well, there, there's little bits of theater online, well, mostly online, I would say, and sometimes in very intriguing forms. And there's even theater on some stages here and there in front of scattered audiences. This is, the feeling of being scattered is very, <laughs> of, very now, I think. Yeah, true. Um, so... But a big question, I mean, there's a lot of questions, obviously, but a big one is when do the big shows start up again? Uh, When will Broadway and off-Broadway and regional theaters kick back into live performance? And how truly bumpy is the road to something like normal? Stand by for a definitive answer to all those questions. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh Oh, my God. We'll kick them around anyway. And we'll also delve into a question that has never seemed more pertinent to those who sit on the aisle and everywhere in between, the indispensability or not of a live audience. Mm, I'm intrigued. Uh, and of course, the uh, the God and listener sent mailbag. I'm just filled with these remarks today, these little, these real, <laughs> You're full of these beans. little flourishes. Well, anyway, just the mail, the script, Peter. Yes, okay. The mailbag also <laughs> figures in this episode's second act. And uh, my Podcast mates, I'm casting a vote for an appreciation today uh, of the most passionate devotee of the performing arts in high public office I have ever encountered. And that, of course, is the late Supreme Court Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Yes, indeed. I've known yes. I've known some public officials who did genuinely like the arts. And, of course, you know, Nino Scalillo was just as passionate as uh, 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 Justice Ginsburg and his great fr- her, they're great friends as well. Yeah, they were great close friends. But I mean, I, I have a personal tie here because Justice Ginsburg, who used to go out to Santa Fe Opera every summer, attended the premiere of my first opera. Holy cow! Oh my god! All right, well, we'll and talk. I was I was staggered, wow. absolutely staggered. That is and so then cool. I met her at, at other proceedings in Washington after that, and. Uh, you know, not, you don't get any benefit in the public eye from caring for the arts if you're a public official. She did because she loved them. One of the things I've learned in the obits, she studied writing with Vladimir Nabokov. I mean, this is a woman who had the pedigree and the passion. Mm. And uh, uh, it was a wonderful thing to know that that somebody in Washington really understood why the arts matter to a well-lived life. Well, that's well said. And I, let's talk about her now. Why not? Uh, this is, this is the, the, this is a good yes. intro. I have to say that in the, you know, the hundreds of times I was in the, I've been in theaters in Washington um, over the years. Uh, I have seen her on dozens of occasions. She sat in front of me um, more times than I can count. Uh, with her Secret Service entourage, but she was the most attentive audience. Yes, sometimes she did rest her eyes at the end of the day. It was a long day <laughs> in, at the office. She'll blame her. Yeah, it was a long day at the office, but she was so loyal, a theater goer. She, um, she went to every major company and some of the tiny companies in Washington. Opera, of course, was a huge part of her life. She, in fact, was cast 
in the um, in the Daughter of the Regiment at the Kennedy Center in 2016. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, that isn't is that fabulous? So and um, um, she even went <laughs> at, at at Signature Theater in Arlington. She she went to see Passion, the Sondheim musical, uh, in uh, a couple of years ago. She went three times. I mean, wow! That, you know, that is masochistic. Yeah. <laughs> that's just that's, some. Just, that's just glorious. So the I, justice, oh the God. justice who liked Sondheim, <laughs> there's an epitaph. Um, it, it feels very. Uh, that's one of the things that I found always a, a little alien in, in this country is that it's actually good for politician to uh, dumb down. Mm-hmm. And a lot right. of them are secret art lovers, but they can't use it. Whereas, for instance, in France, obviously, nobody can be president or prime minister without ever, having written a book. <laughs> Interesting. And, um, and th- uh, there was a president, actually, President uh, Pompidou in the early 70s, uh, who had famously edited an anthology of, of French poetry. Which And now? Poetry would cast you out as just, you know, like a, the, the ultimate whim. And now we Here, and now we have a president um, who's never read a book. So it's uh, it's the perfect mirror opposite. Yeah, we've covered the, uh, exactly. covered the home bases. Of course, we have had, and here we we are. Have had presidents who were oh, writers yes. of real artistry. And some surprises that my favorite piece of presidential trivia in this line is that Calvin Coolidge was a classicist who uh, translated uh, the Inferno on his honeymoon. Mm-hmm. What? Uh, yeah, honest to God, it is. Did you truth. say on his honeymoon? Yeah, on his honeymoon, it was it was a diversion right. for him. I, I, can I just say, on your honeymoon, Mr. President? I mean, okay, well, he, he, I don't he think he's other activities as well. Yeah, I, well, maybe you know, the Inferno is quite a full time job. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I I do wonder about what you're saying, Elizabeth and 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 Terry, the sort of the extremes you're talking about here of a of an associate justice of the Supreme Court who came to your opera to your premiere, uh, and uh, and and talking about you know the 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 the, the, the tradition of, of French intellectualism dovetailing with politics that we um you know we don't at all acknowledge the um the the place of um government and the arts i mean they, they i don't know if it's you know if it's because we i don't know what the is it the first amendment that did this to us you know what is the un, why do why have they gone such separate directions in this country well there, there's a longer tradition of anti-intellectualism in this country that 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 is not new uh but the, it feels that it's gotten a lot worse in the past 40 years it it feels like and i at least in terms of um elected offices where it really is seen it's seen as a as detrimental to politicians to be perceived as being interested in the arts one of the i mean I mean, did, did Hillary Clinton go to the theater as much when she was holding mm. office? I don't think so. I mean, of course, now she has more time right. and she's been going to the theater. I mean, she was going to the theater a lot, but I, I don't recall her going as much when she was in office. Um, well, the, the and, Obamas did invite a lot of artists, yes. you, you know, musicians, uh, you know, to the White House. I mean, yes. there was a that is a very big exception. Um, I mean, in the in yes. the vein of the Kennedys who were, you know, culture mm-hmm. vultures of the, in their own right. Well, that's well, an Jackie interesting was. point right there, because, of course, John Kennedy had no interest in the arts, right. uh, including enough to write his own books. <laughs> but, but he believed in the importance of making the mm. gesture. And that's mm-hmm. why he invented, invited Pablo Casals to the White House. That's mm. why Stravinsky came there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, successive presidents uh, believed in that gesture. Uh, Nixon actually did care about the arts. Uh, uh, George W. Bush was quite a serious reader and now a serious amateur painter. But when I served on the National Council for the Arts uh, a number of years ago, I sort of got an inside shot as to politicians' attitudes about the arts. And um, they are mostly entirely indifferent to them and sometimes actively hostile to them. Mm. And, mm-hmm. you know, I wish I wish it were otherwise, but this is a this is what America is. It's a it's a 
it's a country with a historically rather shallow high culture. Uh, the roots are not deep. Mm. Yeah, you know, I mean, with 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 the RBG, it was it was a true you know organic passion. It was granular. It was part of her. You know, she, I said you know it wasn't about being an invited dignitary. She went because she couldn't stay away. It just was that yeah. essential to her, and it's that example, I think, that really sets a tone for other people to understand the importance uh, and, and endears her at some level to artists deeply, because it is something it, like for us, it, you know, it's just it's an infection and you can't get rid of it with a vaccine. It's just mm-hmm. part of you. And, and I think that's what she represented in a way that's very different. Not so much. I would say, you know, I'm not as conscious of Scalia only because he didn't, you know, in my experience in Washington, I didn't see him at the theater. Um, I saw, I would see Alito. I've seen, you know, I used to see Sandra Day O'Connor. They would go to Shakespeare because there's a tremendous sort of um, draw for Shakespeare among lawyers. It just is yeah. um, traditionally. But you know, in terms of someone who would go and see, uh, you know, things at like the Little Theater of Alexandria. I mean, that's you know where that was the level that what, what Ruth Bader Ginsburg was. That, you know, is, that is serious involvement, right? Serious, right? Uh, it, it's the bread mm-hmm. you eat. Yeah, when you reach that level. Yeah, and, exactly. Uh, I think we all know that we all gravitated to it, and it was a big part of what touched us uh, when she died. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, okay. Well, we're going to move on to even more depressing thoughts. Yeah, let's go. That it. wasn't depressing. <laughs> let's do it. Let's that do was it. uplifting. She's, uh, uh, she is a, no, she is well, a, yeah, but she's she, a, but she's gone and who, uh, it, I find it depressing. Well, she's a paragon though. The, the, the state, the, it's depressing to me that she, that there are she legions was of so them. involved, but she's, she was so alone in that, at that level w- with that passion. Yeah. That, that's what uh, I find depressing, yeah. that there was that there's not more like her. You know, I, I, I um, will say one last thing I'll say is, you know, like people like Nancy Pelosi are, uh, you know, I I can't speak for many. I, you know, I'm not trying to be partisan about this, but Nancy Pelosi, you know, brought the cast of To Kill a Mockingbird to Washington. I followed them along. I mean, it was a real, you know, she's a huge patron of uh, San Francisco arts organizations, has deep ties to uh, a lot of theater people out there. And and music people. So, I mean, some, you know, there are people who don't broadcast it uh, for one reason, reason or another, and that's a whole right. other issue. Why, yeah. as, as Terry right. said uh, earlier, you know, some of the, you know, our secret admirers. Well, I'm going to, anyway. I'm going to steer the conversation yeah. back to um, the, the, let's say the, the big, the flagship, <laughs> let's say, theater, the, the, the most visible, yeah. the, 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 uh, the, the, um, the top of the iceberg, and which reminds me, by the way, that we have had a mayor in New York for many years that, to my knowledge, does not go to anything. So, like, talk about like not leading by example. We're talking uh, about his involvement in supporting the arts has been so appallingly absent right. that it is unconscionable well, to me. Um, well, interesting. But go ahead, and we'll talk about that. Well, I mean, this was prompted, P- Peter, you, you wrote uh, recently a very uh, exhaustive article for the Washington Post, and you talked to uh, leading Broadway producers like Scott Rudin and, and, and Tom Schumacher of, of Disney to get a sense of what it will take to reopen theaters on Broadway and beyond. And we all know in New York, theater is a very big industry. I'm not even talking about like food for the soul. I'm talking about cash. Food on the it's, table. It's... Food on the table, exactly. It's a really big industry in this town. It is in, in other towns, but in New York, it is a really, really huge industry. And <laughs> reading your article was so, well, talk about depressing. Um, it's clearly, it's clear that the challenge is even more complex than we had realized. Yeah. Yes, it's monumental. So, it's monumental. And, and frankly, when I was writing the story, I was getting... Uh, you know, I was having like mini panic attacks almost as I was as people were un, unro- unfolding for me the, the the steps that have to be taken to get us back to working theaters with, you know, in spaces of a thousand and two thousand yeah. people and even smaller. Um, it's uh, no one realized how uh, 
tremendously challenging that was going to be. And it, it's, it's sort of a perfect storm of, 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 uh, complex, a variation uh, matrix of partners who have to all be working towards this um, in in lockstep and and from the unions to the producers to the theater owners to the government officials, uh, you know I mean there are so many uh, uh, players involved and so many levels of protocols that have to be figured out um, and so many monetary issues that have to be solved uh, the uh, and understanding them all I mean it is there. You know, there's a reason that the Broadway League, which runs, you know, is, uh, the Association of Producers and Theater Owners, has 42 task forces working on this. I mean, you know, I'm not sure what 42 task forces are doing, but 42 task forces have been assigned elements of this. And it is, um, you know, the, the bottom line is I don't think we're really looking realistically to seeing Broadway open again till next fall, although they no. say the spring. Well, I mean, I, I mean even know, that might be optimistic. Sometimes hearing tough truths is tonic and inspiring. Mm -hmm. In this case, it's just depressing <laughs> because not long after your your important piece came out, you know, I surveyed the the arts more generally throughout the United States, and what is true on Broadway is on different levels true everywhere. And the conclusion that I came to after looking at symphony orchestras, museums, dance companies, I mean, the whole McGillan, is that as long as we have social distancing, mm -hmm. the arts are not going to be able to function on any kind of normal level. They cannot bring in enough people. They can't seat enough people. They can't make back of house function in such a way that allows uh, the arts to function as they did six months ago. Mm. And that really just shocked me. I, I knew it was bad. I didn't know how bad it was. And I didn't know what a, what a clean sweep of bad it is across, across the aisle. It seems clear to me that we're very close with, with the, the, the Metropolitan Opera has just announced that it's going to cancel for the rest of, of the year. It seems clear to me that we're going to lose some major companies, some arts companies, I mean, some opera companies, some regional theater companies, including some very well-known ones, because they simply can't function. They can bring in no revenue. Uh, they can't pay their staffs. It's, it's really frightening. Um, it is. It is frightening. Um, you know, one of the if we if we move if we if we move back to to the to the to the big stages of Broadway for one moment, you know, Broadway made a decision a generation ago to become a tourist destination. It shifted from a traditional market that was for theater lovers in the New York metropolitan area and a little bit beyond uh, to an to a to a international a gathering place for big, splashy musicals, you know, that appeal to families and would fill the tourist hotels and restaurants of Times Square and, and Midtown Manhattan. Well, th this problem now is coming back to uh, to haunt Broadway because you can't bring Broadway back until those audiences come back. There's no audience that you can successfully build from just a metropolitan area um, uh, a draw. It's just not going to happen. And the, 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 the biggest conundrum is that, you know, New York really can't come back until Broadway does. And Broadway can't come back until New York does. So right. this is where we're right. stuck at the moment. This is the Broadway and the Met are the bellwethers for New York. And also, I think more generally for the arts in America. If they're not functioning, then something is really, really wrong, and they're not well, going to function. I do think, I do think that Broadway actually can come back, but it has to bank and cultivate a local audience. And by local, I mean that the tri-state area that can come fairly easily by car or by train. Let's say Broadway, for the most part, has neglected its, tri I would say, tri-state area audience. Of Broadway, no. 
because that is who goes to off-Broadway shows mostly. Tourists don't go to off-Broadway show for the right. most part, unless there's right. a star in right. it. And by making Broadway a destination event, like something that's always there, like, like the Statue of Liberty is always there. Phantom is always there. You can count on it. And it becomes part of a, a kind of a, an itinerary that you have. So there has to be a complete change of tack where Broadway has to cultivate its own garden has to look inward. And, and I was telling a friend, we need, like, there should be some, like, you know how the Met, the museum has special pricing for, for residents of New York. There should be something like that, for instance, for theater, where residents have priority or some kind of discount. And it could be based on the uh, NYC ID card, for instance. If you, you know, there, there could be a whole number of programs mm. that could be organized. And I feel like Broadway has really turned its, its back it's like the, the locals are fine when you really need to fill the seats and you are really desperate. But really what they want is that destination. Like once this, this occasion, it's turning into an occasion, theater is turning into occasion theater. And that to me has been really detrimental. Actually, I'm mixing two things here. Tourists, like the traveling dollar and the occasion, which can be local, but it's become, uh, theater has turned into a kind of rare event. It's a celebration, which is great. You know, it's something that you splurge on like once a year. And for me, returning to normal means that we have to make it more part of regular life by lowering prices. And that involves, you know, a lot of discuss discussion with, with unions. Those prices have to come down. There's no other way around that. There's no other way to get the, the machine started, like, going again. Which, of course, brings us back to another aspect of remembered normality that, that means a lot to us, particularly because we do go to the theater so often for professional reasons, and that is the experience of the live audience. I mean, uh, right. I'm, I, I, I'm now primarily writing for the journal about digital performance of all kinds, and... Now, I'm finding that much of it, especially shows that were filmed with an audience, uh, and there are, there are different ways to do that, really go a long way toward, toward substituting for what is lost. Uh, and if, if you feel other people in the digital room with you, um, it warms up the experience to, to a great extent. I'm, I'm quite struck by that. Um, the The problem with digital uh, is that it you can't make any money doing it. Uh, you know, with very rare, super rare exceptions, it's just not. It can't generate that level of of income. It, it's a it's a way to hold your ground to let the world know you're still there. It's to support artists to a degree, which is you know lovely, and and but it's not what pays the bills. And um, um, I was saying off air that uh, I am going to go to my first live performance now on Saturday night at the Kennedy Center. Uh, it's going to be on the Opera House stage. Vanessa Williams and Renee Fleming uh, are doing a an evening uh, of music, uh, of eclectic styles of music that they both love. Uh, and um, I have to say that immediately there is an energy about the preparing to see it and feeling all that sense of the presence of them and us uh, puts it in a whole other category of experience for me. Yeah. And I don't think it's just because I haven't been there because I have that same feeling every time I go. Um, and, and as you say, uh, Terry, you know, what do you guys think of this notion? And I hear this from some people that, you know, people will get out of the habit of, you know, seeing things live and sort of forego it as part of what they, you know, when it does come back. Uh, um, I just I, don't see that. There's something innate in, in the species to the desire to congregate communally and have experiences of collective meeting and a meaning and theater is one of those. Uh, and in particular, and this is something I really have noticed in the last few months, Comedy is one of them. Comedy is going to be hard to play in socially distanced audiences. It is hard to play digitally because 
when you're sitting alone in a room, there is an inhibition about laughing. And uh, uh, when, when, when something that I'm watching on the screen makes me laugh, then I know it's really, really, really funny because it's hard to do that by yourself. Uh, and I am, mm-hmm. I am very much wondering whether socially distanced audiences will be able to get that critical mass of togetherness that facilitates laughter. Um, I, I, uh, Elizabeth, I wonder what you think about this. Uh, you know, what we're also seeing is, you know, where we can't lose sight of the fact that this other clamoring has happened over the last several months for a more uh, uh, inclusive kind of theater. And I think that that has to extend to audiences, the people who are going. Um, in recent weeks, a number of major companies have hired some people of color uh, into major roles and uh, uh, in the New York area and Washington, both for me to, 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 to be writing about um, one of the artistic directors of color I spoke to about it said, you know, some of this was they thought that was being circulated on social media as panic hires uh, this this sense of, you know, we better hire some people of color to show that we're, you know, we're putting our our words where our um, our actions, where our words are. But my question is, you know, in this idea of live audience returning and also this idea of what you were describing about what what we need to do in terms of bringing a New York audience back into theaters, how much of that emphasis has to be on constructing a new audience, uh, on, on, on building an audience that doesn't look like the audiences of old, uh, you know, which are, you know, old and white, um, and that are more uh, themselves diverse? Is that have to be sort of in the is that going to have to be part of the bargain here for whenever off-Broadway starts to come back, for example, where there always was more inclusiveness? I mean, I, I think so. I think so. In fact, actually, I was just uh, I was just looking at a Broadway League uh, stat and New Yorkers make up about 35 percent of Broadway audiences. Now, this is not nothing, but it's not 35 percent. I really think if we look at the tri-state area again, by expanding, exactly as you said, Peter, is by expanding, expanding audiences mean that we have to look at pretty much everybody, bring back the old audiences, but also casting a wider net. Now, if I knew how to do that, I mean, an issue has, has often that has often been said, like two things, like uh, material presenting shows that are interesting to a wide range of people and also price. Absolutely. I think that's, oh, yeah. that's the two things that need to be looked at very closely. Now, uh, the first one, um, I think the, um, the, the appointments, the no- nomination, oh my God, my English, um, all these new people who are coming on board leading institutions are in New York. I think, hopefully will help work on that first issue. The second one, the ticket cost, now that is very, very thorny because nobody wants to deprive actors and, and technicians and stagehands for making a living, right? Nobody like nobody wants to say to them, like, take a huge pay. I mean, we all want people to make a living. But the question is, how do we balance that? I, I'm pretty sure Actors and stagehands make a good living in England, but why are their tickets so much cheaper over there? What are the structural? I mean, if I knew that, I, I would be, you know, getting big bucks for my TED talk. But um, well, I, I <laughs> look. I hasten to remind you that New York is not America. These no, we're seeing a, yes, we're seeing yes. a generational rollover from coast to coast. Yes. We were seeing that even before uh, the recent uh, Black Lives Matter uh, uh, and and what's come along with that. And it's going to be easier for regional companies to make these changes if they're committed to it, if they're serious about it. You know, com- I've, I've mentioned before in this show, a company like, like the Court Theater of Chicago, which has in in a, a racially diverse community and has systematically systematically grappled with the problem of outreach uh, both in programming in personnel everything uh it's just because you hired 
a black woman to be your associate artistic director is not going to cause anybody to come to the theater. It is just something you can point to. No, you've, you've got mm-hmm. to be, you've got to be giving that audience you want a reason to come and see you. They don't think they've ever had one before. They are looking for somebody to say and demonstrate that theater is something they'll like that will make sense to them that will excite them. And I do not think in any way that Broadway is going to leave that. It's going to come from below and trickle up. Mm. Well, I, I, want to intru- I want to introduce the Constantine uh, uh, in the Seagull argument. Uh, uh, you know, new forms uh, sounds like, an, uh, like a kind of hackneyed uh, uh, drill <laughs> to be sort of, you know, uh, chanting. But I do think it's going to be that, you know, when theater comes back, and this is part of what we're talking about in terms of luring live audiences, I think it's going to have to offer, you know, more novelty, more ideas of, uh, and, and to bring in, you know, younger, you know, people, uh, both, you know, what, you know, of, of every, uh, uh, stripe and color, um, they're going to have to come up with new ways of presentation, you know, just the way digital is being experimented with. We've got to go back in and experiment even more with how we present, uh, plays in three dimensions. And that's going to be the, a huge challenge, I think, uh, I don't have a. What I don't understand yet is whether we dribble back into those spaces over the next two years, or if there's a kind of you know great tidal wave in which everything arrives back, and you know, and there's a kind of you know incredible panoply of 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 choices to sort of sample. I I don't have a sense yet of where right. where we're going. Without a vaccine, nothing. Mm-hmm. And when you have a vaccine, it's going to be dribbling as people regain the confidence to gather in public. Yeah. I am kind of digesting actually, Terry, what you just say about how the changes have to come from, from below. And I, I both agree and and don't, because I do think that um, a lot of, uh, let's just say below, and I don't mean anything, you know, pejorative by that. Like I'm just talking about size, I guess, but uh, below has been a lot more proactive and progressive than Broadway. And it has not trickled up at all. So if we hope that this miracle is going to work now, it's going to trickle up now. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, Broadway, it's its own ecosystem. Well, yes, I know, because it also draws from, you know, off Broadway and from, from regional, there's like things move. Um, but I think it had, it has to lead in a way. And, so it has to just take initiatives and, and show by example. I'm not sure it has exhibited in recent years the ability to do that no. because it's basically being picking, you know, ideas from others. Uh, can it innovate at this point? When I was reading your article, Peter, I was struck by the fact that some people really seem to think, oh, we're just going to go back to normal. We're going right. to go back to Plaza Suite and right, we're going right, to go right, back right. to the music. That's what they want to do. And I feel that right. that's... I feel there's a certain amount of delusion in well, there, like 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 it like we've been experiencing a pause rather than something radical, right? Like so, yes, is it a pause, and we're going to you know resume where we stopped, or is it just a beginning of something completely different? I I really have no idea. Well, you know, uh, I was thinking as you were saying, you know, I wrote down slave play, a strange loop. American utopia, you know, there are, um, there are beachheads being established that, um, Mm -hmm. that indicate that different worlds can collide in the, on the biggest stages. And that's going to be, as you say, uh, that's the real question. If we're going to just get, you know, there will be, I think the first wave of star driven things just because producers are going to be so nervous about how they're going to get people back into a theater. But I think that's, what's got to have to be lined up behind this, you know, those impulses that are being pushed by the more progressive forces in the theater, uh, making the case that that's the way to reshape this because, you know, the other one does feel like we're going down an old alley that uh, ends in with a cul-de-sac. If you can mix metaphors that way. Anyway, (laughs) All right, well, well we've, we've solved that problem. And Done. we've got a bag of letters. There are still people out there who are alive and excited and curious 
and believe in theater the same way we do. And we're writing to us about it. Thank heavens. Well, I, I've got a letter to read to you then to, to prove it. <laughs> Later. Um, so, um, Rosalind A. Knowles Farrell writes, I don't, I hope I said um, your name right, Rosalind writes, um, and directs this to you, Mr. Teachout. Yes. Terry, <laughs> you have one of the great laughs. <laughs> I was wondering if you go to review a comedy, which we spoke about before, and your distinctive laugh is not heard. Do you think those involved know right then and there that the review is not going to be great? <laughs> this is good. So talk about the audience, right? Here we go. You know, this is the live this is the liveness of the audience, Mr. Teachout. You know, Do you think I, about that? Do you think about like your the sound of your voice holding sway? There aren't many people in the theater who know what my laugh sounds like. But I do, because I've worked in the theater, I have friends in the theater, and they do know. And I've been told that that, that they'll hear it from the stage and say, oh, Terry's here. Um, it, it, it is distinctive, because I when, I'm, when I think something what? is funny, I just let it loose. Um, I'm, I'm going to assume you laugh the exact same way at home. Yeah, that's my question. If the cause is powerful enough. I'm, I'm writing a piece about yeah. Cary Grant, so I've been watching a lot of Cary Grant movies. And I let out a whoop uh, when I was watching um, uh, uh, The Awful Truth just the other night, which has a whole well, lot of... It's a high standard. Yeah, and it's got a lot of physical comedy in it, in which Grant was a genius. And uh, uh, I don't laugh that much out loud when I'm at home. I don't think most people do. But uh, he took a pratfall, and I, I had forgotten that it was there, and I let it rip. And uh, I'm sure the next-door neighbors heard that one. I was going to um, ask if the fire department showed up. <laughs> there you go. We got it. There you we go. got it. That was easy. I love that. Oh, it is right. a great you, you, uh, uh, you can't make that one up. Uh, just, just, no. I just want to add this uh, a quick anecdote from Harold Clerman. I don't know if I ever told you this. Harold Clerman was a great laugher. And one time somebody came up to him after he'd seen a show where he was roaring. He gave a couple of teach out whoops, probably. And he wrote a review that was very <laughs> mediocre. And the person came up to him and said, Mr. Clerman, I was sitting near you and I happened to know you were laughed a hell of a lot at that show. And he said, what can I tell you? I'm a great audience. <laughs> so, I you know what I mean? So there right. are deceptions, you know, you're, you're laughing, you know, a, a teach out whoop may not necessarily spell success either. I imagine. Oh, oh it does. And I uh, love to laugh. I love comedy. I take comedy seriously. Uh, something I've been thinking about and writing about Cary Grant is that a great comic actor is a great actor, period. And a lot of people are reluctant to recognize this fact. Mm. Uh, there's nothing in the world that I like better than farce. Nothing that will set me to whooping than uh, a six-door slammer. And, uh, oh my God! Me too. I like, I love I, that kind of chaos. I and, have uh, to say that in Rhett, that 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 um, by contrast, what Elizabeth does when I saw her at a certain musical, <laughs> she stood up and yelled, "I love you, SpongeBob." So there are different <laughs> kinds of. <laughs> I mean, there are, she couldn't help it. That was her reflex, and you know, people, I, some okay. people do different kinds of things. Anyway. I will just say about that show that I saw it. That was my first show back after having had the shingles. Oh, I remember that. And I was in such pain during that show that I, I was completely... But actually, I would like to point out that there's also the reverse. Um, because I remember very distinctly, I was... Uh, when I, wa I went to uh, see a School for Lies, which to my mind is one of the funniest plays oh, of the past 10 God, years or yes. whatever it was, by David Ives, where I laughed constantly. And across the aisle from me, a certain critic who shall remain nameless was sitting and was stone-faced the entire time. And then he's re and I thought, oh, my God. You're right. He's going to destroy it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. He's going to destroy it. And then the review was just like, this was hilarious. This was one of the funniest <laughs> yeah, shows. Right, right, right. That person did not crack a smile the entire time. And I was completely prepared for yeah. it. So anyway, so it goes to you show. You never know. You never know. That's you never wonderful. know. All right. Okay. Let's do another, another, um, 
letter from the mailbag. Uh, this one is from Chris from Long Island. What advice would you give to a 55-year-old person attempting to write their first play? Well, cheapers, the answer is don't, but <laughs> I'm not the right guy to say it because that's exactly what I did. Wow. It can happen. Um, if you're writing a play is a special kind of technique and it's not something that you can just do from out of nowhere. I didn't try to write a play until I'd seen a thousand, but if you've, if you know how plays work, what the heck? Give it a try. The worst that can happen is that nobody will care. Nobody will want to do it. But stranger things have happened, and they've happened to me. That's all I can tell you. I, I would say the same advice that you would give to a 20-year-old who wants to write their first play. Just go for it. Like, that to me would be the exactly the same advice. Like, study the the style or, or don't. I think a lot of plays are way formatted and way aware of uh, being a play right now and so just just follow your heart which is probably a terrible <laughs> advice but uh, i i Peter, will you got some advice here? well i would say that you know write it for yourself don't write it for anyone else i wrote a i'll tell you a, a little totally little story uh, I, I entered a play in a 10 minute play contest several years ago um, I wrote a, a little comedy about a, an artistic director giving the curtain speech at a play and having a nervous breakdown in front of the audience um, essentially and I submitted it it didn't you know I didn't even I never heard from the theater. I was just curious to see what happened. Thank God you know in a way but my wife read it and thought it was hilarious and that was it that was my. <laughs> That was my success. So, you know, I, you know, it's like, it's all in, it's all in some measure, you know, about, you know, the need to do it rather than the need to see it. Yes. And I think that well that's where said. it starts. Well, that's said. where I think it starts. Our yeah. tradition is to end these podcasts with a notable production from our recent wanderings. Most of them are happening now on our laptops. Uh, I wrote last week about, a very unusual treasure that I rediscovered. Um, nothing is more ephemeral than a great performance if there's not a camera. I mean, it. it I wrote in my piece that the, the great stage productions and performances are the sand castles of art. But back in the 50s, a few major Broadway stage shows were performed on TV later on. They were filmed, performed in studios. Some of those telecasts were performed on kinescopes. And by a wild coincidence, I found one of the holy grails uh, on home video. Um, the Kane Mutiny, mm. we all now remember for the film version in which Humphrey Bogart plays uh, uh, Captain Queeg, the mad uh, captain. But on stage, Uh, that originated as a stage play directed by Charles Lawton. It was one of his great achievements as a director. And Quig was played by Lloyd Nolan, who was a B-movie actor, uh, just a, a, like a journeyman. And he gave a performance so staggering that it led every single one of his obituaries and was praised by every critic in New hmm. York. They were stunned by it. Uh, and, of course, he didn't get into the movie because he wasn't famous. Well, they did the production on TV in 1955 after, at the end of the, the run. Uh, and it preserved, it's a abridged version, but it preserves Lawton's production. And Lawton was a great director. And it preserves all of, no of Nolan's stage time in the play. Well, I found this from a, a video dealer. Their name is is robertsvideos.com. You can find it on my blog if you look the review up. And it was like opening a time capsule. This performance that I had read about for as long as I've been reading about theater was completely preserved, and it was better than Bogart. It was one of the best. It's You know, I, I read those reviews, and I thought, oh, yeah, right. Nope. It was as good as the reviews, and it reminds you of what an imperfect instrument drama criticism is. We can hint, we can evoke, but you've got to be there. And I thought I would never be there to say to see Lloyd Nolan playing Captain Queen. Mm. 
But now I was, and you can. And mm. believe me, it's worth it. Wow, that sounds lovely. I, I, I love really the sad. idea of you like uh, entering the dark web of uh, <laughs> VHS uh, DVD of uh, 1955. Uh, it's it's legit, you know. I mean, kinescopes are out, are in public domain. There's nothing no, illegal about this. No, no, I, I just, just love the fame. idea of like the, like just like digging deep to find these like really obscure obscure nuggets. I think a lot a, a lot of us really over rely on what's available for streaming right now. And of course, what's streaming is a tiny, tiny, tiny little portion of what's out there. Uh, yeah, and what YouTube is preserved. actually full of. Oh, yes. Extraordinary live TV drama from the 50s and early 60s. I'm going to be mm -hmm. writing about some more of these things in my column for the journal. But this was the one I had to start with because it was something I had dreamed of. And mm -hmm. here it was on my laptop. Uh, well, I uh, saw... Um, so uh, Paula Vogel, the playwright, has started a series called uh, Bart at the Gate, where she um, organizes readings of understand, uh, undersung obscure plays that maybe didn't get the fair share. Now, um, last week, unfortunately, it's not I don't think it's streaming anymore. It was a limited um, uh, availability, as most of these things are. Uh, now, that play was not entirely understand because it was a Pulitzer finalist in uh, 2007. Uh, it's Isa Davis's uh, Bull Rusher, but I had not seen it. And so I watched that reading with great interest. And um, I thought that was one of the finest readings I've seen in the past several months. It was absolutely wonderful. I hope a lot of people uh, caught it. Um, the play is a style that I'm not personally usually a big fan of. It's this very kind of poetic, florid language. Uh, it's set in 1955 California, and it uses slang of, that particular, of the particular place where it's taking place, where it's set. And uh, I, I thought it was incredibly efficient. And of course, because a lot of actors, unfortunately, have, are available right now, the cast was superb. It was uh, uh, Andre Holland and Corey Stoll and Carrie Young, uh, whom New York audiences have seen in a bunch of shows like um, Halfway Beaches Go Straight to Heaven, which uh, was wonderful. So next up in that series is Dan LeFranc's origin story. I'd never heard of it. I'm looking forward to seeing it. That's on October 7th. And then Christina Anderson's Good Goods on October 29th. So I highly recommend Bart at the Gate. Got it. Uh, and uh, Peter, what uh, what have you seen? Well, you know, we've, we've been talking about sort of the, the limits of digital, or at least I have. And yet I have become a, a huge fan of Richard Nelson's plays. His pandemic trilogy com is completed with uh, something that's online now, a, a piece called Incidental Moments of the Day. And uh, in the in the vein of the other two and in the vein of the Apple family plays, it concerns the Apple family on Zoom. This now transferred to Zoom. Uh, and they're, it's a, a series of sisters and brothers and some people connected to them. And, you know, you might at first think it, it's just a, a sort of a random uh, series of conversations, but I think it really goes, he's so smart about using this form and figuring out how to make it talk to uh, the, the condition of our lives. Because in this piece, uh, the, the characters who we followed along for months in the other pieces are even more sort of... Um, removed emotionally from each other somehow they're they're both they long for each other and they're sort of their fault it's all the all the threads are kind of getting weaker in one way or another and there's a kind of mystery level to you know what's happening between these among these people culminating in them all observing the youngest uh member of the family who's included uh or not the um uh uh performing a dance to a Scott Joplin rag uh, in a in an, an apartment in Paris by herself, and the the there's a, a just a lovely sense of you know again t reminding us what that what that fulfills in our lives what and what's missing from our lives when we can't see performance of that sort in real life and the actors who I just want to mention um, J O Sanders Marianne Plunkett Sally Murphy Layla Robbins uh, Charlotte. Uh, Bidwell and Stephen Kunkin are just, they're wow. now such a superb company. Um, they've really figured out how to you know, work this, this platform for its, its maximum um, 
uh, impact. They know, they understand, you know, it, it does take a bit of time to figure out gesture, how that works, how, you know, how, what, what the timing is, all those things now are so, um, beautifully, uh, orchestrated that it's, it, to me, it goes by in an instant, an hour long play, an hour and 10 long pl- minute long play. It's on the applefamily.com website. Uh, and I think it's up for a couple more weeks. It's written and directed by Richard Nelson. Peter, can this be viewed intelligibly without having seen its predecessors? Yes. I I do think it helps, certainly, to know who these people are. But you're not really conveying, because they're sort of plotless, you're not really having to pick up on uh, what transpired in the last two uh, uh, episodes, so to speak. It really is what's conveyed in terms of the state of mind of each of these people and what they're, what it is that they are um, lacking and yearning and um, and and missing, uh, and also um, trying to reach out across the uh, across Zoom to each other. All those things. Uh, I'll just give you one minor tip. Tidbit. You know, if you're watching Marianne Plunkett who shares a house with her brother, played by J.O. Harris, who is also her husband in real Sanders. life. J.O. Sanders. What did I say? J.O. Harris? <laughs> yeah, not J.O. Sanders, not Jeremy Harris. That's what I was thinking. Sorry. Oh, my God. Uh, that oh would my be, God. wow, what a scenario. Anyway, no, and um, uh, <laughs> what's transpiring between them, the the uh, her sadness and his newfound joy, uh, those two things put up against each other is a mini play in itself and doesn't require any anything more than what's communicated between them. Take note, listeners. Yeah. Okay, wow. That what that was what a jam packed episode. We had like what drama. <laughs> <laughs> well we don't have any even now we have no shortage of theater related things to talk about. And Indeed. that's kind of encouraging. Yes. yes, it's it's you know what it's 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 like a phantom limb. It's uh yeah. it's not there, and we uh, we feel it all the time. Alternative yes. explanation: we have big mouths. <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> not not mutually exclusive. No, no, no. Okay, but it, wow. it is time for us to wind up. I know. Well, thanks, dear listeners, for hanging here with us. We uh, hope we'll bring us bringing you us i know for sure it's bringing me some definitely some joy some entertainment in these dire times and times of uncertainty um well for now at least we're we'll keep on keeping on you bet uh, i'm elizabeth vincentelli i'm terry teachout and you've been listening to three on the aisle a podcast from new york about theater in america and online hosted by american theater magazine i'm peter marks our producer is Erica Huang, a woman of incredible forbearance. Nay, long-suffering. <laughs> Indeed. You can follow us on Twitter at, at 3 onthe And if you're not doing it by now, what the hell is wrong with you? <laughs> and write to us at 3 on the aisle spelled out, at gmail.com. Please let us know what other topics you'd like to hear on future episodes. And don't forget to leave a review or rating on iTunes or Google Play. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be with you again soon on the virtual aisle. 